This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Sean Chuma. Now, Sean has the most base jumps of any man or woman on the planet and is also one of the few people who can conduct tandem base jumps. Yes, that's base jumps with someone else strapped to you. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into extreme sports, mental health, psychedelics, overcoming fear, coaching the youth athlete, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 650 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sean Chuma. Enjoy. Well, Sean, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this fine day? I'm in Twin Falls, Idaho. And uh, yeah, we're just kind of in the south central part of Idaho. Um, Yeah, it's kind of just desert and there's a big canyon right in the middle of the desert. And that's where I live. So not many people have chosen their place of residence based on a gym, uh, bridge that they can fling themselves off. So <laughs> um, talk to me about, you know, and we'll get into obviously your base jumping journey, but what made you choose that particular part of Idaho specifically? Oh, so I started skydiving when I was really young, 16 years old. It was 1996. And uh, then I started base jumping um, in 2006. And Twin Falls has this bridge uh, that's about 500 feet tall. And I lived in Idaho or Boise, Idaho when I was in high school. So at the time when I was living in San Diego, I was, I was like, man, I can go up there and learn how to base jump. And, and that's what I did. And then eventually I ended up moving up here just because there's a bridge and I'm, you can jump off of it anytime if you're an experienced base jumper. Um, so I thought it seemed like a really good idea because I was a gymnast and I wanted to like learn how to do flips and stuff off on base jumps. That was kind of my main interest at the time. And, uh, yeah, so I just went for it, moved up here from San Diego and, uh, I've been here about 16 years now and I love it. Yeah. I just want to underline the fact that you're pretty much the only person I've met that moved to a location just so they can fling themselves off a bridge. So I think that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty unique. Yeah. It's really the only reason I came here. I didn't know anyone here in Twin Falls. I knew people in Boise, which is two hours away, but yeah, I didn't know anyone here. So it was kind of a big leap of, of faith. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's start at the very beginning of your timeline because you have a very unique journey into even the, the world of skydiving itself. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin in 1979. And my parents were both in the Air Force when I was younger. 
And uh, we moved around quite a bit. Like when I was two years old, we moved to Kansas City, um, Kansas. And then when I was three, we moved to Oklahoma City. So it was, we were constantly on the move. And there were several other places after that. But um, yeah, I'd say we were just a pretty middle class family. Yeah. And it was, uh, I don't know, it was pretty interesting. I know when I was a kid, I I, did, I wasn't super stoked on on uh life i guess but it was um it's pretty interesting i mean i had fun i wanted to just do sports and like i just wanted to like play all the time so that's pretty much what i did so what did your dad do in the air force itself what was his position he was in uh they were both in the medical side of things so he did uh i think it's called biomedical engineering so it was just kind of like working on the hospital equipment and stuff like that and then as far as sports, so you said that, you know, you, you enjoy playing, um, walk me through the, the sports, especially the ones that involved you falling through the air. Oh man, there's a lot of them. So I, let's see, I'm trying to think of what came first. It was, I started skiing when I was four or five years old. I know we went out to California, um, cause my grandpa had owned this little cabin at Mammoth Mountain back when it was only $20 a day to ski there. And, um, so we went out there for like, I'd say once every winter and I kind of took to that, um, pretty quickly and, and loved it. Um, cause I could hit jumps and I just really liked the feeling of being up in the air. So that was one of the first things that kind of put me airborne. Um, I was pretty fearless when I was young. I would just go really fast and hit these jumps and either land it or wipe out. And either way, it didn't matter because I was pretty invincible back then. Um, I think the next thing I got into was gymnastics. Um, when I was, I think 10 years old and that was exactly what I wanted to do. I, it was either going to be gymnastics or diving. And my mom took me to some diving classes when I was younger, but it was kind of a long drive and it wasn't going to work out. It was cheaper than gymnastics, but it was just really inconvenient to, I guess, everybody's schedule. So yeah, I started gymnastics and ended up doing that. Um, I think it was maybe three or four times a week. And, uh, that was like my main thing. I was super busy with it. Ended up being more and more because I stayed in it for years and years and ended up competing and taking a lot of trips for it. And it just kind of opened up traveling to me. Um, when I was 12, I got to do my first international trip because of gymnastics. We went to Spain to do a, it was an exhibition at the world's fair in Sevilla, Spain. And my whole team went out there and had this whole kind of like a choreographed show. It was like a gymnastics demonstration, but it was a choreographed show. And that blew my mind. Just like being out there, we ended up staying on an air force base. I think it was called Moran air force base, um, somewhere in near Sevilla. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, the whole, I remember the whole time being in Spain, I couldn't really, uh, comprehend that I was like in a different country just cause, I don't know. It just, it blew my mind, you know, it was, um, and then I just kind of fell in love with that, but yeah, the gymnastics, uh, it kind of opened up a lot for me, um, because I was already naturally athletic in that sense. Like I taught myself how to do flips on a little jogging trampoline before I got into gymnastics, but then the gymnastics kind of helped to further all of that and just kind of, uh, yeah, made me a lot better at it, but it was an amazing thing. It was pretty brutal on my body. Well, 
I can say that now because I can feel it now, but at the time it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was cool. And I learned so much stuff from it and, uh, worked really hard to, to actually get to the level I was at. So I just had a guest on the show, Leah Barto, who is, um, she's a CrossFit athlete. She was a high level gymnast when she was younger. Um, she's actually in charge of one of the, the team of, uh, BirthFit, which is kind of think almost like CrossFit, but a more of a wellness version for women. So you talk about, you know, prenatal and during pregnancy and postnatal, really, really amazing organization. But we started the conversation talking about the impact of, the extreme training that she had as a young gymnast and the impact, you know, mentally on some of these kids, physically, even, even things like menstrual cycles. Um, the answer is not obviously to not do sports, but I think a conversation needs to be had as far as performance versus the wellness of our children. I mean, I'm not saying this was the case with you, but when you look back, was there any sort of overtraining in your experience or was three times a week um, enough to kind of give you a good foundation without overtraining? Well, I mean, when I was younger, it ended up being three times. It was three times a week, but it ended up being almost, I think, five days a week um, when I was older. And I'm sure there was a bit of overtraining. I didn't know any better. And I probably still don't know the difference between like actually training a sufficient amount versus overtraining. I can, I, I, I would be willing to bet that there was uh, probably some overtraining. I mean, I remember being like extremely fit. Um, I also remember sometimes being training so much where there was just no, no more gains happening. And that even happened in college too. Um, my body, uh, my percentage body fat was about three to 4%. Um, a lot of my life when I was younger, um, just cause we did train so hard. I mean, cause I got into other sports as well. There was times where I was doing like th three different sports at the same time once I got into high school. So, um, yeah, I could totally see that there might've been some overtraining going on. Well, I think that you've actually kind of added another element to the conversation though. One of the things I hear that is good in training our kids is encouraging them to be a multi-sport athlete so if they do enjoy basketball and baseball and football for example or wrestling or whatever it ends up being that those that change in discipline as far as not only the mental enthusiasm but also the different kind of ranges of motions on their joints seems to then create a much more resilient athlete now again you have to create rest and recovery but where over and over and over again guests on the show report the most injuries is that repetitive injury you know so say you're a baseball pitcher and you've got these 12 year old kids having shoulder surgery that's i think where where we need to have a discussion of of putting games back in rather than drills over and over and over again. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I could totally see, cause I know with the, with the base jumping, the amount of base jumping I do now, it's mostly just hiking, um, you know, cause the jumping is not too bad except for on the neck and the shoulders on as far as the openings go. But, um, the, the hiking is, is what I feel most. And I know it's like, that's the most repetitive thing that I, that I do. I mean, it's been like, I think I edited it up once and it was uh, the amount of vertical feet that I've hiked from my base jumps is to the International Space Station, um, I think maybe twice. 
Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> that's something I think people don't think about is that physical component before. And I do want to kind of unpack the physical and mental challenges that we're going to see in 7X. I know another conversation we're going to get to at some point is is kind of mental health and, and even um, you know psychedelics and some of those therapies. When you look back with this lens you have now at your childhood, are there elements that you would contribute Oh, you you would consider as contributing factors to some of the mental health challenges you had later in life? Yeah, I would say probably the amount of... I was a pretty quiet kid. Um, I was really focused on sports all the time. I feel like I was able to be social with my friends that were in the sports. I don't feel like I completely lacked in like actually having some sort of social life. But outside of those sports, there wasn't much. Um, I think a lot of the big problem was just kind of suffering in classes in school, maybe um, because I remember my classes being really difficult, like uh, as far as like comprehension um, or just basically focusing on what I was on, like the task at hand, you know, um, I feel like that was the most difficult thing for me. Um, but as far as contributing factors, um yeah, I mean, maybe a uh, possible lack of sleep when I was younger, um, just because it's so busy, you know, I basically didn't know how to rest. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of maybe the main one I would think of now and just being so busy, you know, no time to actually have any downtime. Now, what about career aspirations? When you were in the high school level, what were you dreaming of becoming? I So, yeah, in the high school level, I wanted to be a stuntman. I mean, before that, I wanted to be a pilot. So it always had to do had something to do with being in the air, like flying. But eventually, I kind of, uh, my my dream was to be a stuntman. And uh, yeah, so I, I never really got, I my thought was that I would be like a stuntman doing movies and stuff like that. I didn't realize it would be such a specialty thing. You know, I still kind of consider myself a stuntman, but it's definitely more specialized in skydiving and base jumping. Well, you can tell you, you are a stuntman because I'm a stuntman and what you do is far more extreme than <laughs> what I do on stage. <laughs> so firstly, I can attest that. Secondly, I've got a, a friend, Eric Salas, who's also a high level flyer. Is that someone that you've crossed paths with? Yeah, I do. I know him pretty well. We went to this uh, stunt school down in uh, in Orlando. This guy, John Zimmerman, um, has this little spot down there. I know him. He's yeah, really I know cool. of him, shall I say. Yeah. Yeah, so we went down there because we were training on this Russian swing because we wanted to do Russian swing base jumping. And so we wanted to get some practice on it. And we went down to John Zimmerman's place down there. And Eric was supposed to come and uh, and visit us. But um, yeah, I know him uh, through base jumping. I've talked to him a bit. And uh, yeah, I know he's he's uh, he's like pretty well into the uh, stuntman kind of arena. Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, his twin brother, Jesse, is... Um one of the top instructors in foundation training. So that's how I first came across him. But both of those guys were City of Orlando firefighters before they transitioned out to their, um, you know, separate roles. But, uh, yeah, actually he's in, he's in Florida this weekend, but ironically, I'm going to be with you in Texas. So <laughs> I'm going to miss uh. paths with him. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well then, so you're dreaming about being a stuntman. Walk me then through that transition from gymnastics to your first skydive and let's let's kind of walk through then how that 
then compounds to base jumping, flight suits, and then, you know, that journey? Okay, so I was, uh, yeah, from the gymnastics, um, I can I tell you kind of like my, the timeline and oh, everything? Please, yeah, expand as much as you want. So the gymnastics, I did that until I was about, um, I think, 16 or 17 years old because this is kind of where I went into two heavy sports at the same time. Well, I was skiing the whole time. I was actually a ski instructor starting at 14 while I was in high school and, and all that. Meanwhile, I was also competing in gymnastics. And then I started pole vaulting in uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. So I don't know, maybe I was 15 or so then. Um, and so I'm doing, I'm trying to kind of juggle in all these things at once. And um, then I got, I actually liked pole vault a lot and decided it was kind of like what I wanted to do because the gymnastics I was, I did well with it. I did, uh, I could do a bunch of different tricks, but my form, as far as like trying to keep my legs straight and stuff like that, I just wasn't the best at it. So I would get low scores in the competition. So I was like, man, this kind of sucks. I just wanted to do my own freestyle type of thing. But, um, so I ended up doing pretty good in pole vault and traveling all over for that and, uh, ranked really high nationally when I was in high school. Um, so I quit gymnastics, I think when I was a junior or so, and just focused focused on pole vault. Um, meanwhile, I did my first skydive when I was 16. It's kind of right around that same time. So it was like a base jumping, skydiving ski instructor kid. They put me on the news for it. And I had some little news clips somewhere, but, um, I had no idea that it was like, that was just my life. That was what I was doing. I didn't really see it as anything different from anyone else, but everyone else was like, Whoa, you do that. But I was so shy that I just never talked about it. I was kind of like not a very talkative kid. Um, but yeah, so I I uh, got into the skydiving. I was like, well, I really like this too. And um, by the time I graduated high school, I had uh, 150 skydives. Well, just because um, it was just sorry to bite in for a second. So, what even made you want to jump out of the plane the first time? Like, and you know, because I know that you're even your age factors in a little bit, isn't it? Is how you were able to, to jump out a little bit earlier than most. Right. Yeah. So I, I, um, yeah, luckily at the time you could do a tandem skydive when you were 16, but then the next year they changed it. So you had to be 18. So I had already started skydiving. So it was kind of, I just kind of got lucky with the timing on that. Otherwise we would have had to wait a couple more years and who knows if I would have even gotten into it. Um, so that's, I'm pretty grateful that they didn't change that rule earlier, but, um, I, uh, yeah, I just uh, oh, what wanted what made me want to skydive? I just saw, I think I saw it on on television. Um, people skydiving, I was like, dang, that looks so much fun. Because you know, like I said, I always wanted to just be up in the air. I just want to be detached from the ground, and um, and that seemed like the best way to do it because you're totally just you know jumping out of airplanes, completely detached from everything, and and you know just falling to the earth. And, uh, it was one of the most fascinating things I have ever seen. And, um, yeah, I was just real lucky that my parents were so supportive of it. They even let me use, uh, some money they had put away for college for me to, so I could buy a parachute at a young age. And, um, and it was just, you know, once I had that, I was, uh, I was just, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. 
just jump off of stuff. So, um, yeah, I just kind of continued on through high school and I kind of had to slow down during college cause it was pretty expensive and I wasn't mowing lawns anymore. Like I was in college in high school. So, um, I kind of put it on hold a little bit till after I got out of college. So you said after about 200 jumps, that was when you started exploring base jumping. No, actually I had 700 skydives before I started base jumping. Um, so started skydiving in 1996. I started base jumping in 2006 and I, uh, yeah, I, I, I was, I had seen base jumping was kind of the same thing. Like I'd heard of it in skydiving. I never really thought I would do it because it looked pretty, you know, full on. But then I had a friend that, um, that actually like did it. And, uh, and I went to a jump with him. His name is Adam Clark. I went to watch him do a jump off of an antenna and he, uh, I was like, Oh my gosh, that looks really fun. And I thought I would just give it a try and see how I liked it. And turns out it was pretty awesome. So <laughs> I just kept doing it. So what was the progression then into the flight suit? Because I want to get to, you know, the psychology and some of these other areas of it, just as we're going through your journey. So you you did 700 skydives of a regular, you know, free fall. Then you transitioned to base. Again, how does one go from base, which is still a, a vertical drop, to transition to a suit that will send you somewhat horizontally as well? So the, the wingsuit has to you start that in skydiving. So after about 200 normal skydives, you can get into a wingsuit and, and start practicing on that. Then once you get about 200 of those, and when you have about 200 base jumps, so 200 is kind of the magic number all the way around. Um, so once you get about 200 wingsuit skydives, people say you're kind of getting close to being, um, you know, sufficient or proficient enough to have, the skills to do it in a base jump, but you want to be really skilled in base jumping as well. So, um, that's kind of the, how I went. I mean, I, I ended up doing my first wingsuit base jumps in Switzerland and, um, I, w- I didn't really think it was, it was a while ago. I mean, I've been doing it for, I, I don't even know how long now. I mean, I guess the wingsuit base jumping has been at least 14 years ago, but, um, I wasn't, I didn't think it was really, really awesome. It, not as, I mean, I love it much more now just because the suits are so much different, but, um, I thought it was pretty cool, but I also, I still liked just jumping off and doing flips, um, in a tracking suit, which is another suit that doesn't make you go as far kind of makes you look like a balloon and you just have more surface area. So you fall, but it's not as, you don't get as much glide as a, uh, as a wingsuit. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, it it is a pretty serious thing the wingsuit base jumping um and some people see it on the videos like non-jumpers see it on the videos like on youtube and they they think it looks easy so they just kind of go for it um but it is something that it does take a a lot of training and and just you know it's something that happens over a long period of time rather than just something you jump right into so when Alistair was on here, um, and then Dukes is on here as well, I think the, the misconception, the facade from the average person is that 
it's a high risk event. But when you actually start to talk to these higher level, you know, free fallers and wingsuit pilots, should I say? I said flight suit, that would be falling into your death and, <laughs> and something that a pilot wears. <laughs> that was my ignorance. I apologize. Um, you start to understand that there's a huge amount of diligence to the training. And Alex Honnold is another perfect example, the climber. You know, yes, he free soloed um, El Capitan, but you look at the diligence of the preparation. It was insane. So talk to me about your kind of experience and perception of, of what people perceive your world is like versus the actual risk reduction, risk mitigation that you and your peers actually have. Okay. It's... So I would say the the average person sees us as just kind of crazy and they've got a word for it, adrenaline junkie. They see us as just kind of like a go for it, you know, type of person that, that just puts on this stuff and actually like really just uh, like a severe or like super high risk taker. Um, I would say it's much different than that because I, to me, it's more about precision. I'm not, I'm not going out there and doing these things to scare myself or to get an adrenaline rush, whatever that even means. Um, I feel more of a feeling of, of peace. Uh, I think it's through the precision that, that I feel as well. I mean, everything has to be so finely tuned, um, and so perfect. And the more perfect it is, the more kind of in touch you feel with that moment. Um, and that's when it's a beautiful thing, you know? So, um, yeah, there's, it's so much different than just, uh, just going for it. I mean, it's just, and it's hard for us to explain because most of us have been doing this for so many years that it's, it's, once it's your life, it's kind of hard to explain to other people how much you've put into it because it's one small step after another, um, with just acceleration or not acceleration, but, uh, you know, you just keep getting better and better at it and you almost can't quite remember what it was like to not be at that level. Um, so it's kind of hard to explain, um, other than it's not just something you go try, you know, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just kind of becomes a way of life where you constantly progress more and more and yeah, eventually you reach this level where it's just, you, you're not really thinking about what you're doing. You're just kind of doing it. And, um, you kind of connect with this level of precision that just becomes pretty profound. I mean, so what did you do correctly at the beginning that allowed you to be diligent and, and, kind of shy away from some of the complacency that must start to sink in when sadly some of the the men and women that you've jumped with you know have and this isn't you know, blaming or anything but the, but some of that was was able to get hold of them and, and and it resulted in injury or death are you asking how i've kind of made it this far yeah i mean really more so I think the front door really sets the bar for a lot of us. So if the bar is set high, set high when, for example, you're first taught how to skydive and you're first taught how to pack your chute, um, and you stick to that framework, 
I think that allows, you know, you to, to add to that framework to make it safer, but, but you've always got that foundation to fall back on. When corners are cut and people are trying to accelerate through a skill, that in my profession, at least, is where we see, you know, some of the, sadly, the line of duty deaths and some other things that occur. Um, and then speaking to Dukes and Alistair, you kind of hear the same thing reported that when, when people deviated from that routine that they had diligently prior, that was a lot of times where they ended up losing friends. So I have a pretty, uh, I've explained this quite a bit in a certain way. I, and hopefully this kind of answers your question, but I see base jumping as a massive, well, not massive, but a, it's a spectrum of experience where you have this very positive side of things and a very like horrific side of things. And I feel like in the beginning you can, you don't, you just see the positive side of things. You just see like how fun it is and just the, get the good experiences from it. Um, and you're not exposed to the, the darker side of things. And during that time, you are more likely to, you know, make poor decisions because you just don't really realize the severity of, of, of what can happen. Um, but eventually you lose a friend or you have a close call um, or something tragic, you know, just witness to something very tragic um, having to do with the base jumping. And it really wakes you up. You know, it, it makes you see, oh man, this really is very serious some people, they quit after that because they just kind of couldn't imagine that darker side of things being so bad because it's traumatic for a lot of people. I mean, um, I would say it's probably, I've never been in combat, but I, I would assume it's sort of, um, I guess, relates a bit to that. Um, but I've, I feel like I know that I've, you know, I've been around for a long time, got over 7,600 jumps now. And I've seen a lot of people jump. I've seen a lot of accidents. I've had very close calls myself. And those kind of things are, they taught me through time. Luckily I made it through all of those, but through time they taught me um, that it's a very sensitive sport and, and it kind of showed me the possibilities of what can happen. And I know where, what I don't want to happen now. Um, and it kind of just, I've been able to recognize patterns in people's personalities over time, um, you know, to, to actually recognize who is more at risk and who is not and what mentalities and attitudes work in the sport. Um, and I think that's helped me out a lot as far as still being able to, you know, be in this sport, to be around so long. I know that I'm not invincible. Um, I would never say that, but, um, but you know, I, I'm just, uh, I've been, I've, I've just seen a lot so that just being witness and, and being, uh, like kind of one with that whole spectrum helps me make a lot better decisions as far as what I do when I jump or, you know, what decisions I make as far as jumping goes. So you talked about the personality types that you think are the, you know, the most likely to succeed. I know in the fire service, when I look at some of the, the greatest leaders that I've worked under, 
humility is a huge thing. Of course, courage and all that stuff factors in. But it's, I mean, you you talk to these some some of these incredible people, and they act like they're a brand new firefighter, and they're asking you questions. Who you know, you are a brand new firefighter, and you're just blown away. And it's the same, I think, in jujitsu and some of these other areas that I surround myself in. What are some of these personality traits that you witnessed in in some of the the people you revere, some of the most successful base jumpers and and um, skydivers that you've been around? I think the ones that, yeah, constantly keep learning, um, do the best because once you know everything, which there's plenty of people out there that already, um, kind of assume that they know everything because they're not aware of what they don't know. But once you know everything, you just stop learning and there's, you kind of hit a wall and, um, I don't feel like you can progress any further. Um, but if you're constantly open to, um, more information and and you're just kind of, I always see it as like a, you know, if a person is humble about their abilities, then they're kind of open to becoming better. Um, the people that I see do best in the sport are the ones that are able to learn from other people's mistakes um, rather than making their own. Also being really connected to the, the history of the sport helps big time because that enables you to learn from past mistakes versus someone that just comes in with maybe no skydives or, um, or they, you know, are just somehow disconnected from the past. Maybe they learn from someone else that, you know, is new and wasn't really experienced enough to be teaching. Um, that kind of turns into a, a kind of snowballs because then, maybe they end up teaching someone else. And then, you know, it's like an Island of people that haven't learned anything from the past. So they're kind of reinventing this, this sport in a way, and they have to make the same mistakes over and over again. So it's kind of a weird pattern that seems to develop and um, they don't always have the best outcomes that way. I think it's, it's people that just have a lot of respect for, for, you know, past things. And I mean, I know with my students, I always, suggest that they read through the base fatality list. It's a uh, kind of a list of, of incidents, uh, f- fatalities um, that have happened in base jumping. And it's, it's never, it's not a fun thing to do, but it's, you know, these um, people that have passive left lessons behind for all of us to learn from. Um, and it's just kind of a way of, you know, being connected with that side of things. I mean, of course, someone could probably go down some, weird um kind of dark thing with it but you know i think there's a lot of positivity that can come out of learning from other people's mistakes if you didn't if you just ignored all of that then you know then you're gonna possibly make the same mistakes you know and i see a lot of people especially nowadays there's a lot of people that want to get in to the sport so quickly um and they don't want to like they say can i just jump without skydiving and you know the reason you would want to skydive is so that you get better at flying a parachute so that you can land it in a small landing area in the short amount of time you have on a base jump. But, um, a lot of people aren't really patient enough for that. So they, um, just want to skip those steps and it might be good for them for a while. Um, but it's much more high risk. And, you know, the problem is, is that they, um, could get severely hurt or killed pretty easily just by some simple mistake that they made because they didn't, you know, there may be some little thing they didn't know. And, um, 
and then it actually makes you know the rest of us that actually did all the training look kind of bad as well um because you know most people know that you go and get 200 skydives and that's not even that much you know um and then you get into it and it's it's just a serious sport it's you know all the good videos are online all the videos of people you know like making things look easy that's what everybody looks at they don't always you know it's there's bad things that happen too and i think people don't quite understand that you know it takes a lot of precision so well i think that parallels again that's why i love these conversations with people outside of my profession is there are so many parallels and when we have some catastrophic line of duty deaths, when, for example, Charleston lost nine firefighters, we, we have a thing called the Denver roll after a, a firefighter was trapped and his, his colleagues were around him, his brothers and sisters, but they physically couldn't get him out of the fire. Uh, Mark and Todd that we lost here in Orange County, we learned, you know, to, to pull ceiling a lot more aggressively and differently than we would. These are all takeaways. Because there was no way around it. There was a funeral. There was deaths. It had to be an investigation. But the other learning points are what we call the near misses. And that takes courage from the individuals and, and the departments to say, I fucked up. And here's what I did. And I'm putting it out there so you can all learn from it. But I think as, as you kind of touched on, if we just put the Instagram highlights out there and that's it, then we're not allowing, as you said, others to learn from our mistakes. So with that being said, in your community, what are some of the, the lessons that are kind of internationally known that were written in blood in the base or skydiving world? I mean, it, I guess a really general way to put it is to not progress too quickly. Um, that's, I guess, that's probably one of the uh, quickest things that are leading people to to their death is just trying to you know maybe they'll jump a right into a wingsuit too early before they have the skills on the wingsuit to be doing what they do or maybe they'll start flying you know their flying style because you know in wingsuiting you can fly away from a cliff which was what people did in the beginning you know when they first started wingsuit based jumping is they would just fly really far away from the cliff jump off and fly straight away and then you know people started flying along the cliff and then now like through little valleys and right above the ground terrain terrain flying which is really fun but you know you can only fly so close to the ground before you touch the ground and if you touch the ground you kind of explode um and i think uh since it looks easy people just want to try it and i mean of course it's what everybody wants to do because that's kind of what superheroes do and it's it's like a very uh attractive and addictive feeling to to fly like that but it's uh you know there's a certain progression to all of that and i feel like that gets lost um and it can get lost because you know someone along the line might have just skipped a certain step and said oh yeah that totally worked i did fine you know and then everybody looks at him saying he's still alive and then it kind of uh continues going on like that where people take more and more shortcuts and then i feel like you end up seeing more and more um fatalities because of that but you know that's one of the main things and and uh it's just skipping the, the progress you know i mean the skydiving is there the requirement um is there for a reason it's just so that you can you know you, you got to learn how to fly your body in free fall um but not only that you got to learn how the deployment 
works for the parachute. You know, you want to completely program your body to be able to reach back and pull your pilot chute out and, um, and then actually flying the parachute and landing. I mean, this isn't stuff that you can read about and then get better at. It's stuff that takes experience, um, a lot of experience, um, because there's no time to be thinking up there. And it's, I always equate it to learning a language. You know how you have to, when you're learning a language, you have to think of, um, the word in, in both languages, like in English and the other language to kind of translate in your mind. Well, when you're flying a parachute, it's kind of like that in the beginning as well. You're thinking like, you know, pull on my left hand, make the canopy turn left. Eventually it becomes automatic and you just turn the parachute, you know, it's like your brain is operating it rather like it's connected kind of like a, um, like an avatar or something is how I think of it. But, um, it, uh, and there's no time, there's not that lag time. You don't have that available when you're flying parachutes and especially with base jumping, because you're so much closer to objects when you're, you know, I mean, like, let's say you open and have a 180 and you're facing a building, you've got about two seconds to turn it around. Um, there's no time to think, Oh, I needed to do this and that. And then all of a sudden, you know, time's up. So it's just, um, yeah, I always always recommend for people to really take their time and understand um, that the sport is going to reveal itself more and more over time to you, and you have to kind of earn its respect as well as um, as respect to yourself. You know, absolutely. Well, just to put it in perspective, you talked about the elevation that you climbed in your base jumps would allow you to visit Russian cosmonauts twice. Um, so, <laughs> I think it's twice. I, I could have done the math wrong. It's been a while since I added it up, but it's at least once. It's a long way. So, um, so putting that in perspective, um, how many base jumps do you hold and where does that compare to every other person on planet Earth? So I've got 7,680 um, base jumps. And um, yeah, I don't know of anyone else that has that many. Uh, there's no Guinness Book of World Records or anything. So I don't really know, but as far as I know, um, from everyone I've talked to, and I know, you know, most people in the base jumping community. Um, so, yeah. And the reason why I have so many is because I live here at the bridge and I, I mean, I really love base jumping. It's just, it's my life and I just have a serious passion for it. And I just never wanted to stop. Um, I've been held up a little bit by injuries and stuff, but I just wanted to, um, it was something that I really, uh, I mean, just, I, I've, I love it with all my heart and, um, it taught me so much about so many different things and mostly about myself, you know, cause it's been just this, you know, it's, it's like simultaneously, there's this spiritual journey going on for me, um, right in alignment with the, with my base jumping and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's beyond words what I can explain what the sports done for me and, and, um, I could probably never explain everything I know about it because it's just not always available to me to put into words, you know? Um, but yeah, I really love it. And, uh, I feel like I've always been pretty humble about it because I still know, even though I've got that many jumps, I still know that I'm not invincible and, um, you know, nobody is, um, the way that you, cause you think about the odds, right? Like you think about the odds, you, you know, this many jumps and, you know, certain amount of jumps have freak accidents 
um, or turn into like a freak accident. And the only way to combat that is just with more precision. People always ask, does it make you, um, are you even scared anymore? And, you know, I, I know most of us that have a ton of jumps, um, yeah, we've seen a lot. So it's, we've kind of been traumatized. It doesn't get easier as far as, uh, like being less scared. Um, I know I'm pretty sure Dukes feels the same way. Cause you know, you see him on the exit and you can see the fear in his eyes as well. You know, um, I think all of us kind of deal with it our own certain way, but you know, you think about all these friends that you've lost in the past and it's, um, and so the only way to get better and to, um, have better chances is to become more and more precise and make better decisions, um, in every moment. And that's kind of how, how I try to live. Um, well, you are obviously starting to scrape 10,000 reps, which, you know, we hear over and over again, the world of mastery of truly, you know, mastering a skill. And when I look back at my career in 14 years, I didn't pull hose 10,000 times. I didn't do 10,000 IVs. I didn't cut 10,000 people out of cars. And so, you know, one of the dangers that we have in the fire service, especially when it's a young fire service, because some environments, you know, a lot of people have retired. The, the work environment is pretty shit. So they don't, <laughs> there's a revolving door. And now you see very young firefighters walking around beating their chests as if they know everything already, you know, and they've only, God, you know, responded to, if they're honest with themselves, 10, 20 fires in their career so far. So I think it's important that we hear someone like you still being scared, still being, you know, humble with so many, so many jumps. Um, you touched on the injury. What I would love to explore is your mindset leading up to your first near miss that you experienced and then how that knocked your confidence. Cause I think that's a very important thing as well. And yeah, that's, I feel like you're just looked into my brain and, and, uh, saw that to ask that question. Cause yeah, that I would say the the first, um, like base jumping mishap I had was, um, I was trying a, just to set it up. I was, there was quite a few people on the bridge. It was at the bridge in Twin Falls, and I was trying a new trick. Remember, I, I was a yeah, everybody remembers I was a gymnast and um, I did a lot of flips. And I would I kind of just put all that in, uh, put all that into kind of uh, my base jumping, and I was trying something new because um, I can't remember if it was because someone asked me to do a trick because I would get that a lot. I would get requests, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then, anyways, I tried. I did this trick, and it was a. I think it was trying to front flip with one and a half twists and then a back flip. So it's called a Rudy, Rudy in back out or something like that in gymnastics terms. It doesn't really matter, but um, I ended up pitching the pilot shoot at the wrong time. Um, I actually kind of like over twisted a little bit. I was a little bit sideways on the, on the second flip, which makes the pitch window, the pitch being the pilot shoot um, when you throw it out into the air. Um, it makes it really small because it was, it was almost just closed off and I kind of just had to throw the pilot shoot and, um, ended up with the, uh, there's a piece that connects the pilot shoot to the parachute. Um, it's called a bridle and it wrapped around my leg. And so that wasn't letting the parachute come out. Um, 
And the bigger problem was that my dad was on the bridge and he was taking photos of me all the way down, towing this pilot chute down, wrapped around my leg. And I eventually got it out. I kind of felt like Houdini in that moment because it was like this thing was wrapped around my leg. It wasn't coming out. Um, and the way I was rotating backwards, I had to, I had to wait until I was, till that pilot shoot actually slowed my rotation or stopped my rotation going backwards so that it would reverse my rotation. So I could get my foot back up in the air to get the bridle off of my foot. And then, uh, and then I, I got that off and then kind of like rolled over and the parachute opened at probably 50 feet. And this bridge is only, is about 500 feet. So I would say that's, I don't know, it's a, like a, probably a fraction of a second from just, you know, being too late. And, um, and I made it back to this, to the land to, to actually land the parachute and everything. Um, I'm pretty sure I had some line twists, but, uh, when I landed, I was like, I was so embarrassed and my confidence was absolutely destroyed, um, because I had a certain level of precision that I lived up to. And, um, you know, I didn't try to, cover up my ego because I'm not really that type of guy. I knew I screwed up. I was really pissed at myself. And I, um, yeah, I was, uh, I, I felt just really embarrassed because I, I shouldn't have done that, you know, but, um, and I also felt embarrassed that I almost killed myself in front of my dad. Um, that was pretty heavy, you know, that's like, that's would not be good for any parent. So, um, I ended up from there. Um, I would say it took me like a year to come back from that. You know, I wasn't the guy to just shrug it off and be like, whoa, cool. I almost died. You know, or, you know, if people said that I was like, no, no, it's not like that. You know, like that's a pretty serious thing. I mean, you know, um, so I just went back to the, the basics from there and just stopped doing flips or well, any, I stopped doing more than anything, more than like a double gainer or a, or a front flip for like a year and just, did really basic stuff to try to build my confidence back up in myself. Um, you know, and, and my awareness in space just to kind of retune myself. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was pretty hard, um, to, to actually come back from that because, um, you know, just, I was just really pissed. Yeah. And I just didn't have the confidence and I came back and then I ended up doing it again. You know, I've, I've done this like, uh, I think three or four times wrapped to the bridle around my legs. And each time it's been a really close call. And it's like, how many of those do you get? You know, and you don't just get better and better at coming out of it. Cause it's, um, but you do get better at not doing that, you know? And, and, uh, I guess one of the things I learned is not to, take requests from people, you know, like if someone asks me to do a trick, I usually, um, do something really simple just to show myself that I can, um, that I can kind of have control over, over myself and, and do what I want to do. Um, and if someone says, you know, ask me what I'm going to do, because I've had people ask me like, while I'm standing on the rail, they'd be like, what are you going to do? And, and it, literally like seconds away from jumping. And I usually try to say it in a nice way, but I'm like, I'm actually about to go right now. So, you know, Can you fuck up? <laughs> just watch and find out, <laughs> you know, watch me do my thing. And, um, anyways, though, yeah, those, that was, uh, that one seriously rocked my world and, um, taught me a lot about myself. 
um, not just my, my, uh, base jumping abilities, but, you know, psychologically, you know, it's like, don't show off, you know, showing off is, is probably not going to get you the best results. It's, it's a sport that you want to do for your own passion. You know, you want to like, you want to do it for yourself. Um, because if you're, and this is where social media gets real dangerous in it too, because people do certain base jumps and they're highly motivated by, um, getting, uh, you know, views or whatever we call it. Yeah. Um, so they're doing this stuff so that they can, you know, cause people can become famous on the internet. And, um, I think if you do that in base jumping and you're not doing that for the passion of it, then if something happens, then you end up, uh, I think you'd be much more regretful if you were doing it for other reasons than just the pure passion of it. Um, and I think people can just be influenced, you know, um, to do things that they wouldn't normally do or things above their skill level, um, just by, you know, the desire to be, to put something on social media. So one other thing that I heard you talking to Richard and I forget the name of his podcast, but the Australian, um, cave diver that was interviewing you. Um, and it's something that mirrored, uh, I think Dukes was talking about this. I'm sure Alistair was as well, but also the importance of understanding when to say no. As Alistair, I remember clearly saying this. He's like, well, when we do, you know, risk mitigation or we, or we figure out risk, we can't be 99% safe otherwise that 1% chance we die so we have to be 100% safe you know as far as what's in within your control and that includes when to say no and i think one of the 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 bravest most courageous thing is when everything's been ramped up and you're like yeah, I get that we're really excited about this, but this isn't the right time. Whether it's a structure fire where we know in our heart of hearts that no one is viable inside and you have to make the the courageous decision to tell your crew not to go in or whether it's standing on the edge of a bridge and realizing that the wind or whatever it is or even just your gut doesn't feel right. So talk to me about that element. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest lessons to learn is is how to actually walk away from a jump because some people feel, you know, in, in most things in life, if you walk away, you, uh, or, you know, you, um, yeah, if you, it's almost like you're looked down upon or you, you would feel defeated on a, a lot of things if you, you know, didn't follow through with something, but it's much different in base jumping. And it's, um, yeah, it's something that kind of has to be practiced, you know, because, people look to protect the ego and they, uh, it sort of pressures them into, you know, jumping in horrible conditions or, um, you know, whatever the, I guess, variable might be. And, um, yeah, it's, I think it's, people need to know that it's totally okay. I mean, I, I teach my students, um, that, you know, a lot of times you will have to walk off and, it's nice when we actually have the opportunity to walk off or we'll just, sometimes we'll just go out there and, you know, look at it for a while and then be like, well, we're all kind of tired right now. And I don't feel like jumping. And I praise them for making good decisions like that too, because it's not all about just raging and getting, um, obscene amounts of jumps in, you know, um, I think, um, I know for myself in base jumping, as far as assessing 
like risk in base jumping, it's pretty hard because there's so many different risks. It's not like you can actually just do a checklist of things. Um, but what I do is I try to identify as many, um, as many risks as I possibly can, whether it's, you know, like the simple things to, to look at is like, is it a new object? Is it gear that I'm familiar with? Are the conditions, um, ideal? Like maybe it's, you know, a little windier than normal. If it's cold, you know, I, that's another risk because my body starts to almost, uh, mimic a nervous feeling, um, you know, visibility, you try to just see everything and then decide, um, if you can minimize those as much as possible and what's the minimum, um, I don't really know. So that's kind of one of the problems, you know, it's like, you wouldn't say just cut it down to two risks, you know, it's like, cause it, you can identify you infinite amount of risks and something I would assume, but, um, yeah, it's just all about trying to minimize those as much as possible and also paying attention to how you feel on the inside too, you know, um, kind of using the extra senses and that, and that we have in intense situations, you know, cause I notice in myself, I can, I'm much more in tune and sensitive to more subtle, uh, like, I don't know what you would call them, like subtle energies, um, in super intense periods of time, you know, there's just a lot more that goes on in the mind, um, at a lot deep, at a much deeper level and trying to pay attention to those things and just listening to it, deciding if it's like a real sign, um, from deep within yourself, or if it's just fear, you know, that's kind of a hard thing to realize the difference between the two as well. So now, when you look back at, you know, your, your entire, you know, skydiving, base jumping career, were there any elements that you would in that portion consider challenge your mental health, whether it was loss of other jumpers, whether it was your near misses or your injury or, or other elements that were completely outside your sport? I feel like I've been able to turn any, any hard times like, uh, deaths of friends into positive things. So I feel pretty fortunate to be able to steer those things in the right direction. At least that's how I feel. You know, I feel like I learned a lot from them because I see death in a much different way than, than, um, than I feel most, uh, I can't say like, well, I'll say non-jumping people. Um, I see it differently than they do. Uh, just because I, I've lost a lot of friends uh, more than I could even probably write down. Um, and that's driven me in a different direction, I would say spiritually. So therefore I s just see things a little bit differently and I react to them differently. Like, you know, where some people uh, kind of lose their shit, I might um, be a bit more calm about it just because I have a whole different perspective on it than that. Um, so I feel like it's done nothing, but, um, I feel like I've been able to grow from, from those experiences. Um, I would say the main thing that would mess with my mental health is probably the parachute openings. I don't think that's thought about a lot. Um, you know, it's kind of like whiplash every time, thousands of times. I never really thought that something like that could cause any issues. Um, 
because you, you know, most people would think, oh yeah, you, if you hit your head on something and actually get a concussion, then that's where the damage would come from. I think that's what most people, or that's how most people think of it. Um, but then, uh, you know, I come, come to find out that in a, like a whiplash situation, your brain is actually kind of smashing into the front of your skull. And I guess that can cause damage as well. So I think about that type of thing a lot. Um, and, you know, wonder if, um, if people need to address that a little better or, you know, if there's a way to combat that, you know. Yeah, even with the stunt work I do, a lot of it is stage combat. So you're faking taking a hit. And I think of that. I mean, I've been doing it 20 years now. They're micro, micro traumas, really. But how much of that adds up and contributes to other TBI elements that you might already have? Yeah, I know. I I, because I it gets me thinking. And I think that's why I gravitate towards these different projects that are have interest in TBIs. It's that. I, when I was a little kid, you know, the gymnastics, I was constantly landing on mats, you know, like on my back or on my feet or, you know, um, jumping on trampolines, you know, landing on my back where my head is actually like landing on the trampoline and bouncing up with, you know, um, the skiing crashes, the, the pole vaulting, pole vaulting, like coming 15 feet down onto a mat, even though that mat's soft, it's still like, you know, you're getting things. And then, yeah, with the, the parachute openings and and everything with the base jumping. And I've had a few, uh, like, ac- like actual head impacts as well. So, um, if you add all those up, you kind of start to wonder, and then it makes you actually think, you know, do I have symptoms of this? And then, um, yeah, it's, uh, so naturally I kind of gravitate towards projects like the seven X project and, and, uh, and I do a lot of reading, just to find out more about myself and, you know, like how I can kind of improve myself, um, from, you know, for the future, for my future. Well, one of the things I've heard over and over again is it seems like the most effective treatment for TBI is psilocybin. Um, and there's been a lot of discussions on plant medicine with mental health in this conversation. I know that, that you've done ayahuasca yourself. So talk to me about when you first found that and did that contribute somewhat to your slightly different perspective on death than maybe some people would have? Okay. So I, yeah, the first time, um, I was talking with my friend, um, Donald Schultz, um, cause he was, I would say like six years ago or so he was going to a retreat down in, uh, the Amazon jungle, um, outside of Iquitos, Peru. Um, and, uh, he told me about it and I was in, I was in South Africa with him at the time and, uh, we were talking about it. And then he had, I think right when we were, it was a bunch of things that kind of synchronistically happened at the same time, but he was, uh, he had gotten word that a spot had opened up for one of these retreats. Cause they're backed up. I mean, like they've become very popular, and, um, I didn't have the money, but then this parachute I had for sale sold that day too. And I was like, well, shit, this means something. I mean, I, you know, I, I things just lined up and, you know, I'm okay with that. Like I'm, I welcome that kind of thing. Um, I hope that life is like that all the time. Um, 
And anyways, I ended up, uh, yeah, booking this trip down to the jungle. Um, I probably wouldn't have gone had he not, um, been there and kind of checked the place out because it, I don't know. I mean, I, I think a person would want to be somewhat skeptical about, um, yeah, going into the jungle and, uh, drinking this magic brew. <laughs> I don't think it's just something you just go for, but, um, I thought a lot about it and I'd always been really interested in psychedelics. Um, uh, I read a lot about them when I was in college because I feel like they, uh, even helped me in college as far as, um, like concentration and on, um, certain classes like philosophy and psychology. Um, it just made me think on a different level. I felt like I opened up, um, like as a more of a, like more identified with a soul with my soul, um, kind of through that in college. But, um, so the, the experience in, in Peru was, um, was much better than all that though, because it's more of a, a guided thing. You know, these tribes have done this, uh, for, this has kind of been their system of medicine for a couple thousand years. Um, like the Shipibo tribe is the, is kind of the, I guess, background, um, tribe that, um, was kind of like the, were kind of like leading the ceremony. Um, the shaman were from the Shipibo tribe and they, um, yeah, they, it was, uh, it was almost like psychotherapy. Um, you would, you know, we did, I was down there for 12 days, no phone, um, which was awesome to shut off from all that. Um, and it, you, each person stayed in their own little, um, screened in hut. And then, uh, yeah, we did seven different ceremonies and it was definitely one of those, the most magical and, um, revealing times of my life. It was, uh, it definitely was very healing and that's the whole purpose. I mean, the, I guess the intention is always to, to heal traumas that you're not even aware of. Um, and it did open me up a lot. I mean, like I said, it was one of the best things I've ever done for myself. Um, both spiritually and, and, uh, I guess psychologically, um, cause I feel like people kind of get encrusted with this stuff around them, like all these things they kind of build up, you know, cause life is hard sometimes and you, um, you kind of just get closed off. Like you build up this yeah nasty crust around you. And I feel like it, just the easy way to explain it is that it kind of breaks all that off and kind of reveals your real self to you. And, um, and I had this, uh, kind of vision when I was down there in one of the ceremonies that it was, um, it was like these vines and it's, you know, these are always kind of weird to explain because it means something to me, but it might not mean the same thing to someone else, but it's, um, it was like, uh, these vines were kind of, patching up or reconnecting certain parts of my brain with, um, you know, that had been disconnected over time, um, specifically from this one, uh, time when I hit my head on a brick fireplace when I was about two years old. Um, apparently it was, I don't remember it, but apparently it was really traumatic for my grandma because she still talks about it. Um, I hit my head on the corner of the fireplace, my forehead. And anyway, so these vines, um, 
were kind of like growing, like uh, rooting themselves and, and just reconnecting everything. And I felt different after that. Um, and there was a lot of other experiences too, but uh, that was kind of one that stands out to me. So just before we go to 7X, one more thing. When it comes to mental health, what I've realized through talking to some of these amazing people is there's two approaches. Many of us, I think, will acknowledge that there is healing to be done. And so by going down, by submitting, being vulnerable, going down this path and finding whatever works for you, equine therapy, EMDR, you know, psilocybin, whatever it is, that you will grow from that. I think the other thing that's rarely mentioned and I think is also the way to connect with some of the more naysayer type um, personalities that maybe are kind of believing that facade that they don't need that kind of thing is understanding the higher level of performance. I had a, a Logan Goldbridge on who was a, a high level baseball player and he talked about this flow state in one particular play that he made and He's, he was talking about needing three things to get in the flow state. You need that repetition, just as you've talked about, those those hours and hours and hours and hours of reps. You need stress. Now, a diligent fire service should hopefully have lots of repetitions and stress is certainly going to be there in a structure fire. But the the third thing is you need a clear mind to get into that flow state. So talk to me about the importance of you know, ayahuasca, meditation, all these other things that you've done to create the type of clear mind that allows you to think and certainly mitigate some of these disasters that you've had midair? Well, man, I guess the easiest way to explain it is that there's, there's a certain way. So in every everyday life, um, the perception of time, it is kind of like, uh, you know, something you get used to. I feel like when you become more in tune, which is, I guess the, probably the flow state that you're talking about. Um, I think you start to see things in more frames per second, easy way to explain it. Um, and so your perception of time becomes much different. And I always call it base jumper time because it's, you know, when you're in free fall headed towards the ground, one second can feel like five seconds or so to someone, you know, that's why people have a hard time going pretty far down before they pull the parachute because they, they jump and they just pull the, the pilot shoot out <laughs> right away. And they, they're like, Oh man, how long did I take that time? You're like, you literally took half a second. And, um, you know, that meanwhile, they're thinking they went three seconds deep, you know, and, um, it happens all the time, but, um, yeah, I feel like, uh, as you become more in tune with your activity, um, it's real important to, to be able to kind of break down that time into a more usable, um, I guess a more usable amount of time, um, to do what you need to do. Um, because with the, when you, when you're able to like actually process that time, uh, or do more like process and do more things in that amount of time, you can just, you can kind of do an infinite amount of things, you know, like superhuman type stuff. Um, so I know that, um, you know, when things really count, um, I don't know if it's something that I really control, but I just kind of, I know when I step up to do a jump, I mean, it kind of just switch on and I don't really think any other way because that's just how it has to be, you know, in the, in the few seconds that, 
that there is. I feel like it's much different in uh, something that takes um, a longer amount of time. You know, I mean, with base jumping, we deal with, you know, it's literally like the shorter base jumps we're dealing with like up to about three seconds or so. Um, so I don't know. I hope I answered your question with that, or maybe you have something to follow up. On. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's great. I mean, the, the capacity to be able to slow down time, I think involves a clear mind. And if you're thinking about bills and, you know, relationship problems and all these things that, that create the monkey mind in us, then I think we lose the capacity to have that, to expand time at that moment. And I've had that even in a martial arts fight, you know, it literally was, I knew what the guy was going to do before he knew what he was going to do. And it was the most bizarre thing and everything <laughs> was in slow motion and, and the, the tide changed. I went from losing to ending up winning. So it was, it was interesting. Um, yeah it's funny how you can't you can't help but to set aside all all worries of anything else i think that's what draws a lot of people to skydiving and base jumping is that even with just packing the parachute you you know you can't it's almost like you you you're so focused on what you're doing that you, you it's like almost impossible to think about bills and and everything like you're saying it's i noticed that a long time ago um it's not, it was easy to leave everything aside and, and the effects kind of stayed with you for a while too. And, um, even after leaving, uh, the, the skydive center drop zone, you know, it's, it's pretty cool to almost, it's not like an escape, but it's more like just switching things on to a more, uh, like focused awareness. Absolutely. Well, speaking of skydiving, Let's go into the Human Performance Project and 7X. So how did you meet Ryan Parrott? And then walk me through your specific journey into this project that we're going to be embarking on. So I, man, I can't remember if I met him here at the bridge or, I know we've been friends for, for quite some time. Um, he's an awesome guy and I, I've always looked up to him and, um, and, to how motivated he is to do stuff. I, I remember one time he came out with uh, Lee San Martino to do some jumps and he was going to do this uh, snowboard thing stunt. Um, anyways, he was kind of like new at the jumping and everything and he's come a long way. Um, I'm looking forward to doing more jumps with him, but um, also spent some time with him in Moab, Utah. And uh, yeah, we've always just been real good friends. He's, he's always, like he's that guy that I can call and just talk to if I needed to talk to someone or like, he's always got time for um, his friends, which is pretty amazing because I know it's gotta be hard being such a busy guy also. Um, but yeah, I'm real excited about this project and I'm, I'm real happy to be part of it. But yeah, he called me up a while back, um, at least a year ago. And, uh, started telling me the plan as far as going to seven different continents in seven days. And I was like, Whoa, that sounds, uh, <laughs> that's intense. That's a lot of flying, <laughs> a lot of time on a plane. And, uh, and I was thinking, man, I always wanted to go to all seven continents. And he's like, yeah, I want you to come along. Um, you know, cause we're going to be doing a base jump and a base jump or a skydive, a swim and a marathon. I was like, dude, I can't really run. My body's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> pretty messed up my knee and my hips and like all this stuff, you know? And, and he says, well, you don't have to run. We just need you there for, um, like as, you know, kind of like base jump 
safety guru type of dude, I guess. And, um, and so I was, uh, instantly told him I was in on that. Um, so yeah, I'm real excited for that. And I, I pretty much can't believe that the opportunities has, the opportunity has come up and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it along with that though. I'm real excited with the, to meet or, uh, this whole team, um, next week because, uh, of all the like brilliant minds involved with this whole thing, you know, it's not just a bunch of guys that can, um, go run a long way and jump off of stuff. It's like the other people, um, involved, like the physical therapists and, and, uh, you know, all the like health professionals, um, it's going to be really awesome to actually like tune in and focus on the actual um, performance side of things now, which is something that I would really like to um, improve in myself, you know? Um, Yeah. So I can't wait. I can't believe it's happening. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Ryan is, is amazing. It's going to be amazing. I think four days from now, we're actually going to be talking face to face, which is bizarre, but um, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, a bit. But to take that event, and then you have this year-long longitudinal study where they're ramping up their training, they're exploring, you know, recovery techniques and supplementation, and and, and you know, equipment, and all these things. They're gonna smash their bodies in seven X, as you said. And then there's going to be a um, a reboot. There's going to be a recovery phase, and how do they get those performers back up? And then to create a manual that military and first responder organizations can buy to prepare their candidates for that profession to keep the people in that profession healthy and to help people transition out and that money the funds from that manual then goes to support sons of the flag you know the mental health and the burn injured charity that ryan has i mean it's it's just a an incredible 360 degree beautiful project that there's no there's no downside it's the only downside is everyone that's doing it and how they're going to get smashed but you know the result and the docuseries as well is going to create so much information for so many of these professions that risk their lives but get very very little support as far as their longevity you know mid and post career yeah it's amazing isn't it it's so much that we still don't know so much to learn and i feel like this is a huge step towards um figuring a lot of things out as far as how we work so one thing i wanted to ask you i just interviewed um an oxford professor one of the pioneers in circadian rhythms and sleep medicine um professor russell foster and uh when I told him about 7X, because I was, I was interested as far as performance and sleep and his perspective, because we we're also traveling through all these different time zones. And as you said, we're going to be sleeping on a plane the whole time. Um, there's going to be some pretty significant sleep disruption and circadian rhythm disruption. And one of his concerns was actually, it wasn't, you know, the, the completing the marathons or, or the swim. It was actually the skydives and base jumps because the cognitive ability has been broken down through disrupting the sleep so that's your area of expertise what are you anticipating some going to be some of the challenges from that portion of this event the skydiving and base jumps i think the challenges are, are one of them will be just being alert enough and switched on enough to actually um you know like do things safely i mean it's gonna have to be uh, uh 
you, you know, I'm wondering, will we be able to sleep um, naturally or are we going to be sleep like extra sleepy the whole time? I, that's kind of what I'm wondering, you know, because exactly we, we're kind of programmed to a certain rhythm of the planet and um, to just be going around it and being in all these different time zones and every day. Um, yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting, but yeah, I think mainly the, the alertness and, um, and just awareness of, of, uh, of everything is going to be really important. So I think a lot of it's just going to be making sure that everybody's kind of like mentally like has, you know, is like checked in, you know, basically there and present. And if anybody's not, then obviously, you know, we'll, we'll make the decision whether it's going to be safe enough or not, but we won't really know until we're actually in the situation. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll be looking up from the ground. <laughs> actually, I have done a sky. Actually, it's funny. I, I did one tandem skydive my, my whole life. And, and before I am, I've t- told the story before. I literally, metaphorically and literally, shipped myself in a McDonald's right before it was in New Zealand. Right before we went and oh. did the the skydive, um, I did it luckily in in the bathroom, not where I shouldn't have done. But um, by the time I landed, I loved it so much I was ready to sign up for you know the whole road to instructor. Now I couldn't because I was traveling. I was a different country, so I didn't. I haven't skydived since. But it was amazing that fear of what my mind had told me versus the actual experience, and I adored it. But speaking of tandem, one final thing I want to go to before the the closing questions: you do tandem base jumps, which I've never heard of. And Ryan said you're one of the only people on the planet that does that. So talk to me about that, because I get being strapped to a dude and fling themselves out of an aircraft with minutes before you hit the ground. But what does that look like with seconds before you hit to the, hit the ground? So it's, I would say it's much more, um, yeah, it's just, I mean, there's, there's a, it's a, I don't know how to say it, but I'm going to say it's a bit more hardcore than the skydive. I'm not downplaying tandem skydiving. I think it's great and everybody should do that as well. But the tandem base jumping, you know, we don't have enough time for a reserve parachute, so we don't have one. Um, we jump from really low objects it's kind of just a taste of base jumping you know um i always keep it uh very safe for the passenger because i know you know they're just there to experience and try to see why we base jumpers do what we do um so we're not going and doing flips or anything like that i don't think that that's has any uh importance in tandem base i think if someone wanted to learn how to do flips or anything they would just go do them by do it by themselves so i'm just trying to show the people this experience and um and it's very uh it's pretty amazing to see the reactions that people get i mean i've I've told people that it was a very healing experience for them you know like so stressful and so amazing and then when they get on the ground they're like feel a thousand pounds lighter um but it's uh it's pretty serious um it's interesting times you know i've done it for i think i'm coming on to 14 years um um Myself and the two partners at the time, Abi Mishal and Mark Kistner, um, started the company, and we were the first tandem-based company in the world um, to, uh, you know, to do it um, as a like commercial thing. And um, it was, 
it was pretty interesting to to start out because at first there was a lot of resistance and people said, oh, these people don't know what they're getting into. So, you know, it's, it's not really fair to them, but eventually people started to be more accepting of it. And I get a lot of customers and, you know, I've, like I said, I've, I've done about a thousand of these over the last 13, 14 years. And, um, yeah, I would just say definitely, you know, make sure, you know, like if you're going to go do it, make sure you a little background research on whoever you're going with, because right now you don't have to have any, um, you don't have to have like a license to be a tandem base jump instructor or anything. So I'm just saying you want to like be safe about it. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's good people out there, but also you just want to do your, do your homework. Um, cause it's a really fun thing, but it's still really serious and it should always be looked upon that way because you're still jumping and going towards the ground and depending on some fabric to slow you down so that you can land softly. Um, but it can be a very amazing experience and, um, and it has been for, for a lot of people and, um, I enjoy it. I would say just as much as the, uh, person I take, because I just really love to, to feel that amount of, uh, like positivity that they, that they always feel afterwards. Brilliant. Well, firstly, that's terrifying that there's no governing body overseeing that. Yeah, it kind of is, but it's, you know, <laughs> oh, by the way, there's a term for the, uh, you know, when you said you literally shat yourself. Um, we call that the pre-jump dump. Oh yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it was, or, or the the pre-leap square. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of it kind of <laughs> is like is like a cleansing before you go into the real into like uh, the intense situation. I think so that it's I think it's your body looking out for you, so you don't <laughs> the parachute purge. I think that's what I yeah. All right. Well, I would love to switch some closing questions so I can let you go. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, my goodness. So there's one that is so important to me um, that I just read. I've actually um, I listen to a lot of audio books because I while I'm driving and stuff and I like to read in paper form, too. But um, the one that I read uh, six months ago or so is autobiography of a yogi. And, um, yeah, it's changed my, it's changed my whole life. Um, and my whole trajectory in life. And I would highly recommend it to anyone that, um, considers themselves kind of, um, you know, going in or going in a spiritual direction or on like a spiritual path. Um. Yeah, it's a really good book. Really, I haven't heard that mentioned actually. So yeah, you. autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Excellent. Well, what about a movie and or documentary? Oh man, I'm always terrible at bringing these up, or because my recall for the movie. It's like when my girlfriend says, "What rest? Do you want to go to a restaurant?" I'm always like, "Which ones? What are our options again?" Um. Let's see, movie, man, sounds kind of cheesy, but I really did love The Matrix back in the day. Yeah, I don't really know right now. That's okay. Matrix works. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, then the next question, 
Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Okay, so I'm going to give you three names. Um, Donald Schultz, because he's like a brother to me and one of the most interesting people that I've ever met. And um, there's a guy that I took on a tandem base jump recently. He does uh, his studies on um, the gut biome. I think that's what they call it. He's a, he studies fungus, um, not just, uh, he kind of looks like Albert Einstein too, which is pretty cool because you feel like you're talking with Albert Einstein. So I felt like I took Albert Einstein on a tandem base jump, which is pretty awesome. Um, but he's a, he's a, I mean, this is what he's done research on this his whole life. His name is Mahmoud Ghanoum. So I think it's M-A-H-M-O-U-D, something like that. And Ghanoum is G, uh-oh, G-H-A, yeah, I don't know that, but Ghanoum. I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. And then there's, I know uh, there's a, a physical therapist that I really, um, he, he's uh, been a, a really good friend of mine. I met him at this, uh, I did a nitro circus show, which was really cool in South Africa. Um, we did a tandem base jump for, um, it was a tribute to Eric Rohner. And um, so I met this, uh, this um, physical therapist, chiropractor, um, so anyways, his name is Sean Drake. He's a, he's a guy I met at, a, at the Nitro Circus show I did. And yeah, he's really in tune with the human body and does a lot of stuff for physical therapy and chiropractic and, and a lot of other things too that I don't understand. So, Brilliant, brilliant. All right, well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Um, so I, you know, a large part of my life um in my practice is meditation um and i it's one of the most important things it's like the most important thing in my life um and so yeah that's kind of my thing i mean daily um and i can't just explain what i do with that because it's uh it's pretty much impossible but that's kind of my thing and I like to base jump too. So <laughs> yeah, so between the two, perfect. And fly paramotors and just, yeah, fly stuff, get up in the air. And snowmobile, that decompresses me a lot too. Beautiful, being present. So going to the pole vaulting thing, I meant to push this in at the beginning, but I, I didn't want to interrupt you. I, my son, my 14-year-old was on the track team, is on the cross-country team and track team. And the end of his junior year, they had a big track meet and there was pole vaulting. And all I could see, because I was waiting for my son to do his race, was the silhouette. But as a parent, not laughing at these kids, but the silhouettes made by a novice pole vaulter are one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Because you're so used to seeing it on television with this graceful, you know, arc over the bar that you forget that when people first learn yeah. that sport, that it looks like some comedy routine with legs and arms yeah. flailing everywhere. So I just wanted to put that in. I don't know if you witnessed that when you entered, when you began, but I just, I, you just never think of what pole vaulting looks like before they get really good. Yeah, it really does look a lot different from a beginner to a, to a, like a professional. There's guys that go like, there's a guy that went 
20 feet something just broke the world record yeah it's it's pretty amazing um the amount of strength and speed and all the it's another sport that's a lot like base jumping it's a lot packed into a very short amount of time which makes thinking technically really hard to actually make your body do all that stuff in a short amount of time is is a uh, is pretty pretty intense absolutely well sean i just want to thank you so much before i let you go where can people find you online well i have um i do have an instagram and a and facebook account and um i have seanchuma.com and tandembase.com as well if someone wanted to come try a base jump they just end up sending me an email and we book a time and go jump off a bridge i do them all over the world too um it's kind of one thing i've been wanting to get into is doing more exotic and uh sort of high profile exotic tandem base jumps for people that could afford them i mean obviously with travel and stuff like that it would cost a, a lot more because there's a lot of logistics involved but there's things to jump out there that would be amazing and uh we can do it so i can help you with it <laughs> perfect well i just want to thank you so much i mean i'm firstly very excited that we're going to meet next week and we're going to be sharing a plane in about what six months time um <laughs> but uh it's been an amazing conversation and taking the parallels from your world and i've had as i mentioned several of your peers now but that high risk um you know massive uh need for preparation um fighting complacency I and mean, all these areas we've discussed today are totally applicable in the first responder professions as well so i just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today yeah thank you very much you were a great interviewer i i appreciated all of it i like how deep you looked into things um it's always nice because a lot of times it's just about, you know, just all the normal questions about base jumping. But this was, you, you, uh, you asked a lot of deep questions. So I appreciate it and enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.